Welcome to another episode of Life Stories by Congo Kid, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. The Congo. The country has an amazing history from exploitation to wars to political instability, to tragedy. In part one of this series on the history of Congo, we learned about how Belgium was formed, gained independence, and how King Leopold II finagled his way to getting full personal control of the Congo Free State. He exploited the people for ivory and rubber, killing and maiming millions of Congolese for the benefit of his personal bank account. Then, Public and political dissent turned on him and resulted in Belgium taking over the Congo Free State in 1908. We then learned about the colonization of the country for over 50 years, where mining and industry thrived, urbanization became prevalent, and literacy rose. Then, in the late 1950s, unrest became a factor, as many other colonies throughout Africa were gaining independence, and Congo wanted theirs. The common Congolese certainly hoped for freedom, democracy, self-respect, independence, rule of law, and an ongoing improvement to their condition for this newly formed country. Rather, the start of the first five years of its existence, called the First Republic, did not yield any of that, and that period of Congo's history was the topic of part two of the series. To recap... The three phases of the First Republic included government disarray, provinces seceding, a civil war, the imprisonment of numerous Europeans and Americans, and the murder of Dr. Paul Carlson, who became the face of the conflict throughout the world. We heard from Mrs. Lois Carlson Bridges, Dr. Paul Carlson's widow, about her husband and her family during this tragic time. Then Colonel Joseph Mobutu, pulled off a coup d'etat in 1965 without firing a shot and took over control of the country. Thus commences the period known as the Second Republic, which now brings us to Episode 3 in this series on the history of Congo. Hi, Bob. Could I ask you to identify Congo on a map if it didn't have the name on it? Yes. Do you know which country colonized Congo? Belgium. Since independence in 1960, has Congo been relatively stable and peaceful in terms of government? No. Ever heard of the country Zaire? Yes. Could you identify Zaire on a map? Yes. How far away is Zaire from Congo? I think it's a couple countries away. I don't think it's next door. Ever heard of President Mobutu? Yes. What do you know about President Mobutu? Bad guy. Do you have any other general comments about Congo that you know about? No specific comments, but mostly that in a uh, post-independence, a post-colonial period, it's been difficult. With Mobutu firmly in control, he did what any dictator would do, eliminate the competition. First up, a five-year moratorium for all political parties. Prior to independence, there were numerous political parties throughout the country, often tied to geography or tribal areas or economic areas. 
Mobutu also brought in television a year later, which became a vital political tool for him to communicate with the people and retain control. Mobutu spoke with passion, promising hard work, pointing out the disarray of the country, and convincing everyone that in a few years they would be in a much better place. Industry picked up and beer production went sky high. He said what the people wanted to hear. Then, to further cement his power, about six months in, he read a statement on the national radio about a plot of four members of the old regime that had planned to assassinate him. The court case ensued, and if you could see me, you would notice my air quotes around the words court case, or maybe I should say kangaroo court. In any event, they were all found guilty, of course, and subsequently there was a public hanging. A huge gallows was built at the soccer stadium, and four coffins were waiting close by on display. Then four men were hanged, one by one. Tens of thousands of people witnessed it. Nobody could believe Mobutu had followed through. The crowd went crazy. It was June 2nd, 1966. People who had recently cheered for him now trembled in fear of him. Mobutu was a brilliant tactician. He borrowed from Machiavelli, who wrote, Because it is difficult to unite love and fear in one person, it is much safer to be feared than loved, when, of the two, either must be dispensed with. The army was beefed up as it was the foundation of Mobutu's power. They received modern weapons and equipment and training from the best in the world. He renamed a major boulevard after Patrice Lumumba, the first prime minister. He and Lumumba had been friends and partners before independence, then enemies after, each wanting the throne. And here he was honoring Lumumba with a boulevard named after him. As previously mentioned, this was political genius to give all the Lumumba supporters something to remember their hero by. He also renamed Leopoldville, the capital, to Kinshasa. Then, in April 1967, Mobutu said only one political party could exist, and that was called the MPR Party. This stood for Mouvement Populaire de la Révolution, or in English, the Popular Revolution Movement Party. It was a single-party state. It was his political message that one party would unite everyone as a guarantee for progress. The MPR was everywhere. I remember as a kid growing up, watching flag raising at every school, where the students chanted and sang patriotic and songs of allegiance to Mobutu and the MPR. My town, Gemina, had a road roundabout near the airport that was a huge monument to the MPR. Every office in school had a huge portrait of Mobutu. His photo was everywhere. You couldn't swing a dead cat without seeing his picture. I still have a Mobutu poster rolled up in my closet from the late 1970s. He also changed the currency in 1967. The Congo franc became the Zaire. But of course, the students protested that only one political party could exist, as this was authoritarian rule, something from Belgian colonial times. So they revolted and clashed with the army. Injuries occurred and death occurred, and then their leader was sentenced to 20 years in prison, thus quashing their dissent. But yet, while there was unrest the first few years of his presidency, infrastructure projects were underway, commodities became more in supply, and order was emerging. He also popularized Salongo. This word comes from combining two Lingala words, Sala, meaning do or work, 
and elongo, meaning together. Sala elongo became salongo. Salongo was where all able-bodied men had to spend a few hours a week doing weeding, fixing roads, sweeping streets, and keeping things up. I remember many Saturdays listening to the villagers out fixing roads while singing, Salongo is salamosala, translated, let's work together, let's do work. Mobutu did lead by example in this regard, being a very hard worker, such that at age 39, he suffered a minor heart attack. In October 1971, he decided to shed all things Western from the country and renamed Congo the Republic of Zaire. He was pushing for the country to have its own identity, its own authenticity. This meant the changing of all names that were Western in nature, such as Paul, Thomas, or John, and meant that you had to come up with an African name like Kokonago, Palewele, or Talabisa. Joseph Desiré Mobutu, the president, changed his name to be Mobutu Sesiseko Nkukungbendu Wazabanga. Translated, it means the all-powerful warrior, because of his endurance and inflexible will to win, will go from conquest to conquest, leaving fire in his wake. No, I'm not making that up. I guess if you're the dictator and are going to change your name, you might as well not only go big, but go really big. Attire was also on the docket, so no more western suits and ties. Rather, a modified suit that Mobutu designed and a neck kerchief that became the formal attire. Interesting, but the neck piece is called an abacost, based on what China's Mao Zedong used to wear. Mobutu had recently visited China, so neckties like the western folks wore were forbidden. He donned a leopard skin hat and had a carved wooden cane that he carried around. This became his signature look. He was trying to portray being their king. And reference to others became calling your fellow Zairean a citoyen, which is French for citizen. Sort of like in Russia, you call people comrade so-and-so. Here you called out to someone such as citoyen segbewi, or whatever his name was. My dad recalls the day he entered his classroom at his school to see the words République du Zaire scribbled on the chalkboard. Well, I was teaching at Kala, the mission station. So I had 25, 30 students. So on, on Thursday, when I entered the classroom, I wrote about this. I found written on the blackboard, La République du Zaire. I said, what's this all about? And I learned that the parliament in Kinshasa had changed the name of the country from the Democratic Republic of the Congo to the Republic of Zaire. The Congo River became the name Zaire River, and it seems as though the place used to be called Zaire. Now, this isn't the first time we heard that name, that word Zaire, because in 1967, the Congo franc, the currency at the time, was changed to the Zaire. While it sounds easy on paper to simply change one's name, it was challenging for the people. Again, I was writing these things back to America, and in a letter home dated April 10, 1972, I said, did I tell you of the most recent change around here in addition to the new name, new flag, new national anthem, and the cities of the country? Now the people 
are changing their names. They have to drop any Christian or European names to take on the names of their ancestors. Another effort to become a people, African in nature, different and distinct from the Europeans. So for me personally, the challenge was learning all these new names. And so I would listen to the students as they struggled, as they asked their parents for ancestors' name, and they came up with Inglasi uh, Nangeli, Didetamo Makarala, Kuzindelu, Bamu, etc. It was quite a time learning all these new names. Curiously, when I began the Emmaus Bible courses with the high school students in 1976, and did that all the way to 1990, hundreds of certificates were given when they had completed 12 courses and there wasn't one Western name that was used. This did cause angst among the people as there was a culture clash. Well, again, um, I dug into some of my letters and things I've written over the past. And so this is something that I wrote about in uh, November of 1971. So this was just a month after the, the name was changed to the country. And I wrote, it said, Africa, the changing continent, the continent of extremes. Now Africa is adopting Western culture, modifying native traditions. Traditional Africa remains in century-old customs. So I was a missionary teacher in the Congolese high school, and I could see where these two cultures were meeting. And I could see struggles within my students as the new Africans, they were learned about the world beyond. So their traditional patterns of life, marriage, responsibility, the family, the clan, present tremendous problems to those students as they want to also accept some of the Western society. One student wrote for a class composition about his father with five wives and 25 children. Now this student must decide to continue as his father or to make mixture of the old and the new. And then another thing I found in April of 1974, again, the whole process of change is going on with, with uh, authenticity and changing the culture. What kind of man does a society want to form? And this was answered by the Ministry of National Education for Zaire. And they said, to make authentic Zairians proud to be Zairians, proud to belong to Africa, proud of its past, confident in its future. And so in 1972, 20% of the national budget went into the forming more than 3 million elementary, 225,000 junior, senior high, and 16,000 university students, a strong national population of 24 million. And so this is another thing that we're going to be authentic Africans. The national anthem was changed, again, to make nationalism a reality and to shed all things Western or Belgian. After the country changed its name to the Republic of Zaire, they had to change the national anthem because they were no longer Congolese. And so I remember before the change of the name, the students before classes start, first thing in the morning, standing around the flag, would all sing the national anthem. And if you remember, it goes, debout, congolais, da-da, da-da-da. And so what it's saying is, 
standing up Pen Congolese united. Well, that had a change. And so they came up with a new national anthem back in 1971 called La Zaire Waz. And that song was sung until 1997 when Mobutu left power. And so that one went, Zaire Waz down the Peretruve, which means the Zairean in a newfound peace. So those were the changes that had taken place when the country was passing through this authenticity time. Curriculum changes were also passed down to the schools and religion was suppressed. And then there were some other changes that were going on. And that is the government was uh, making changes and the youth programs that the mission and the church were sponsoring were stopped in 1971. So we could see there were going to be a lot of changes going on in the country. So there were no camps, church camps from 1971, and then they were able to start again in 1976. Also in 1975, the government planned to shut down the three important seminaries in Kinshasa at the university. They seized control of the elementary and secondary schools, most of them church run, like the school I was in. And they prohibited teaching religion classes. And the time for the religion classes were filled with courses on Mobutu. And this was in Time magazine on February 24th, 1975. And so at that time, the name of the school I was teaching in was the Collège Evangelique de Ubangi, the Evangelical College Secondary School of the Ubangi. And that's when the name changed to Institute Kimya, Institute Peace. They even canceled Christmas. Something else happened in 1974 when uh, the government said Christmas is no longer an official holiday and people and schools will be functioning on December 25th. And so for Christmas of 1974, schools were in session. And again, this was part of the authenticity program. We're going to be Africans. We're not going to be Westerners. And so we at school, we were concerned. And we were home on Amer in America that Christmas 74, but when we returned in 75, Christmas of 75, I had school on that day. Western music was banned. The radio only played Zairean music. Statues were torn down if the person was Western, Stanley, Leopold II, and others. And new ones erected in their place. He created a national museum a national ballet school, a national theater company, and a national literature prize was established. The TV pushed the government and Mobutu's role in that. NPR praises, government praises, and all things that Mobutu and his wife did were televised to the people. Talk about state propaganda and indoctrination, right out of Karl Marx's playbook. So while he'd given his people greater prosperity, his next aim was to give them a dream— the next chapter of this Zairianization was to nationalize the businesses. Thus, a Portuguese or Belgian plantation owner had to turn the keys to his business over to a local, changing ownership after a lifetime of work. Foreigners couldn't own property or businesses anymore, just like that. A stroke of a pen. Poof. Problem was, the local foreman at a factory or business or farm had no clue as to much of the business dealings to run the business. Importing product and components, exporting the product, 
relationships with various international markets, or even banking connections, as most things were dealt in hard currency. The local plantation foreman didn't know anything of that nature. So while he now owned the coffee plantation because the Belgian boss couldn't, he failed miserably and in short order the business ground to a halt. This caused all sorts of supply chain issues and eroded the positive trajectory of business that the country was enjoying. Other businesses were nationalized and given to key government leaders who had no idea as to their new coffee plantation's operations. So in many cases, they sold it for cash, ran it to the ground while skimming off the cash until it failed, or they tried to hire the Portuguese farmer or plantation owner to manage his old business. But don't think that just a local farm foreman became suddenly an owner of a business. No, no, no. Mobutu himself took 14 huge plantations and a bunch of other businesses and became the nation's third biggest employer. Couple that with the mining revenues he was getting, and he became the estimated eighth richest man in the world. By 1974, the nationalized businesses were tanking or were already bust due to mismanagement and corruption. So, what to do? Enter radicalization, where ailing companies were taken over by the state. This kept some revenues coming into the state coffers, but that failed as well, being this is the socialist and communist model. So he moved to the next phase called retrocession, where he tried to give these companies that had been plundered, mismanaged, plucked and dressed back to their original owners. Needless to say, they weren't interested. These European farmers and merchants had lost their life's work with the stroke of a pen a few years prior, and now Mobutu wanted them to come back and clean up the mess? I don't think so. And I don't blame them. Who's to say he wouldn't do it again? Not only was the business world being turned on its head with the nationalization, but also the numerous church and missions groups working throughout the country in the medical, pastoral, or educational field. Though there had been some talk going on between the missionary organizations and the local African churches about transition of responsibilities and assets, Dr. Tom Cairns, a missionary doctor in Congo for many years, explains about the undercurrent then in play. You know, that was a gradual thing. There were discussions as early as 1960 when the church officially became its own entity. At that time, there were already discussions about, well, should they take over the property? Should they take over vehicles and so forth? But that went on for most of that decade. But then it was in the early 70s when Mobutu was really moving forward with his authenticity movement. However, this push of nationalization moved the issue of assets and who should own and control them to the forefront. And that's when it became much more evident. And they were talking and trying to figure out what to do. The National Church was saying, hey, you've got to turn over at least some of the houses, at least one house on each station. And if there are two vehicles on the station, at least one should be turned over. It was a question of who was going to oversee the fruit trees and who had rights to the fruit on them. The cattle herd out in back of Tondala, who was going to take charge of that? Even missionary placement, who was going to work where? The church was increasingly saying, we get to make that decision. That wasn't a mission decision. And of course, vehicles, the radios, the shortwave radios, interstation, well, they said, well, those are ours now. And so then the missionaries had to move them to a place on the mission where there was access to both parties. 
Another item that was a property issue was generators, the electric generators. And uh, who was going to maintain them and who was going to manage them and the funds for them and so forth. So it was things like that that were happening. And it was a gradual thing. But I would say the early 70s to mid-70s was when most of that was happening. There were good things about this push to move things to the local Zairean church's purview, but also some realities that came into play that might not have turned out quite as well as hoped. Some of it probably was good because the mission had been there a long time. The church was well established, but there are many things that it didn't have or needed yet, especially in the area of training, especially in the area of ongoing ministries of compassion like medical until we would have enough doctors and enough staff, uh, education, and so forth. So all of those were, were things that were going on. And those probably six or seven years were years of great transition, but also turmoil. So those were changes that were difficult to accept, but they were going on. President Mobutu made moves on the world stage to be noticed. One big event was the Rumble in the Jungle. This was a huge affair on the international stage, with Muhammad Ali versus George Foreman for a heavyweight boxing match. Don King, the infamous promoter, promised $5 million to each of the fighters, and Mobutu offered to pony up the money. It was a big deal. The buzz about the fight made it up to us in the northwest corner of the country, and it was yet another attempt by Mobutu to make Congo relevant on the international stage. Yet, with all the glitz and glamour being portrayed, the reality of everyday life to the average person was not so good. The monetary situation was horrific. Money was not stable and the economy was deteriorating. The GDP was dropping every year and the copper crisis, oil crisis, the failed Zairianization, and crazy public spending only added to the mix. The army wasn't getting paid, so they started taking equipment and supplies and started harassing the citizens for money so they could eat. Then, Angola, just to the south, was in revolution, and Cuban soldiers and mercenaries came in to take the Shaba province due to its mining revenues. In 1977 and 1978, rebels invaded Zaire. That didn't help the situation. This was called the Shaba Rebellion. Mobutu needed recruits to fight. Forget the draft. Let's just Shanghai some people. That's what dictators do, right? My dad tells the impact of this conflict a thousand miles to the south, on his high school students. This was during June of 1978. The army was forcibly recruiting from Gemina, in Gemina. Some people say about 3,000 soldiers, others say 700. And the Belgians were supposed to be training these as a security force to protect the southern part of the country. And they began recruiting. The soldiers started picking people, mostly students, right off the street. A C-130 cargo plane came and started taking these students down to Kinshasa. And even President Mobutu came to Gemina at that time in his C-130, and he insisted that the quota be filled immediately, take anybody. And so I was the principal of the high school at the time, and on Monday, uh, we were to begin final exams for the seniors. And only 15, about, about 15 of the 74 didn't show. Uh, they were too scared. One senior was dragged away in front of the school. 
and the soldiers let him loose, though, when he found out that he was the son of a soldier. Students really got uptight. Many of them headed for the forest in their villages. Even teachers, workers, everybody seemed to want to escape from Gemina. I had dorm kids and the cooks for the dorm left. They were scared. So I gave money to the kids so they could find food. And uh, they even left the dorm. I was in touch with the education office. What can we do to protect our students? And they said, we can't do anything. The government is, is insisting. And they, they wanted the particularly the Bacas because they were particularly good at warfare, apparently. And they had poisoned arrows and things like that. So they were targeting the Baca people, the major tribe of our area. Well, anyway, it ended up uh, a day or two after that, that after everybody was scared and running off, uh, that the government finally said, okay, we're done. We're not going to take students anymore. So the pressure was off. So after two or three days of very tense time for everybody, uh, things quieted down and we were able to resume the final exams for our students. Eventually, the conflict in Shaba province ended. So, with the economy in shambles, a province rich in mining revenues being fought over, the direct impact to the average person was immense. Here are some interesting stats. Between 1974 and 1983, prices rose six times over. By 1979, purchasing power had dropped to 4%. That's 4% of what it had been in 1960. So all the foreign banks that had loaned Zaire money began to worry about their debt and rallied the International Monetary Fund to help bail out the country with emergency loans. Yet, with all the loans and stipulations, Mobutu still stiffened off $200 million for himself and his family. Secret bank accounts all over Europe were discovered that Mobutu had embezzled. It was a mess. Then, in 1979, the IMF depreciated the currency, meaning one thing, inflation. And since there were few banks, most currency was stashed in coffee cans or under mattresses. So, to prevent this hoarding, on Christmas Day 1979, people could turn in their old notes for new notes, with the proviso that half the money had to be placed on deposit. Well, you can imagine the poor villager with a few Zaire bills in his possession, sending them into Gemina with a village representative. This was the only bank in an area the size of Illinois. This meant one thing only. Not gonna happen. Lines were a mile long with people lugging sacks of cash. And of course, not enough new bills were on hand to trade. I know my mother, as the mission bookkeeper, she tried to collect all the cash available and exchange it or deposit it. And of course, that didn't happen. Thus, we had boxes of worthless Zaire bills stored under our bed. We did use some of it for playing Monopoly, though, when I was a kid. But imagine the poor average villager who lost his entire life savings. So when you print money you don't have, here's a real-life example of inflation. In 1975, a one Zaire bill was worth $2. By 1983, it was worth $0.06. Cents. Per capita GDP fell from $600 in 1980 to $200 in 1985. This trickled down to the government sector and public services. School teachers weren't being paid. 
Schools didn't get any funding, so the already walloped villager or factory worker now had to pay for his kids to go to school. Roads deteriorated so that even if a guy had a plot of land for growing cocoa or coffee, how could he sell it or get it to market if the roads were so bad and no trucks could pick it up? So with the economy of his country in the tank and his mom and first wife passed away, Mobutu then fell prey to the longing for excess that marks all those for whom life holds no more surprises. I'm reminded of King Solomon in the Bible, as he wrote Ecclesiastes, and the theme of that book is how everything becomes and is meaningless. Solomon, who was at the top of the world in wisdom and wealth as king of Israel, contemplated the same concept Mobutu did at this point in his life. Mobutu started buying fancy properties all over Europe. He flew in top chefs to prepare meals for him. He owned a dozen castles, huge apartments in Paris, properties in Switzerland, and on and on. Furthermore, he then returned to his roots, Badolite, a mere hundred miles from where I grew up. He transformed a village and he built a palace, paved the streets, modernized the city with banks, hotels, and restaurants. In the pièce de résistance, he even constructed the airport to be long enough so the Concorde could land there. Yes, the Concorde flew in and out of Barolite, President Mobutu's home village, now turned modern city. Opulence doesn't even begin to describe what Mobutu did. And meanwhile, the average villager could barely feed himself. They called him the king of kleptocracy. This guy stole so much from the treasury, it was unbelievable. By 1990, there were political rumblings of unrest, and people started to call for Mobutu to step down. Riots began, and a new world political climate was coming into focus. Nelson Mandela was released from prison down in South Africa. Five other African countries were crying for multi-political parties, not just single political party rule. The Eastern Bloc was collapsing, and the Cold War was ending. Mobutu had played the U.S. and other Western countries against his threat of joining the Russians in communism. He owed his empire to the fear of communism, but Karl Marx had proven to be the colossus with feet of clay. He had followed the tenets of communism, and the country had failed. So to keep the pressure at bay, on April 24, 1990, he declared that Zaire would become democratic, and as such, the NPR would not be the only political party. The people cheered. Hope at last, they thought. This caused considerable joy, confusion, and angst, in the political spectrum of the country. By 1991, things began to get dicey and concern for safety of foreigners reached a new level. As such, they were told to evacuate. Paul Noren, who was born in Congo and has lived and worked there his entire life, tells of the political atmosphere in 1991. There was all sorts of things going on down in Kinshasa. I, I believe it had to do with hyperinflation and a huge protest that broke out about that time. And then there, there was de demonstrations and protests and looting taking place. And it started spreading into the country and uh, some of the other towns. So up in the north where we were, just right close to Mobutu's home territory there, well, right in his home territory, we didn't feel like we were really in any danger that we needed to worry about. And it was really odd the morning that we left, you know, I went over to Lisa Southerd to say, Lisa, are you going up to the women's meeting in this truck or are you going to evacuate? And it was just kind of a joke. And about an hour later, she says, yeah, she says, uh, the joke's on you because all of a sudden, all of us are scrambling to, to get out of there and go. And 
we're all thinking this really isn't necessary, but we're following the rules. So we, we took off for Baudelite. It was a disgruntled stuff about, I think, inflation. It was, inflation was so bad at the time that prices were going up 15% a day. The mission and the U.S. Embassy were monitoring things. In that situation, it wasn't rebels. It was more uh, an internal situation just with people being uh, civil unrest is what it was. It wasn't rebellion per se. It kind of was. It was sort of rebellion, but not nothing armed or, or let's say, organized. It was just, just complete craziness. And so Kinshasa, yeah, people had to get out of there. I mean, that was, that was complete nuts. And as we watched some of it move to like Lubumbashi or somewhere like that, Kisangani, you know, then we started wondering, well, what's going to happen? But I thought we could stay. But then the, our government embassies started saying, hey, we think you guys ought to get out of there. And so it was Free Church and Covenant left all at the same time. So it, it wasn't rebels, but it was, it was just civil unrest in the country and people were getting crazy. Things had been simmering, but soon something would bring things to a boil. What sparked it was a military action that took place in Kinshasa that people thought was really unfair. And so we, we heard about that. And I even know the general who did that one. And I think it went from zero to, to completely crazy in, in like a week and a half. But when it started, it really bloomed in a hurry. With the word to leave, they had little time to prepare to evacuate. We might have taken two or three hours to, to get out of there, but we had to go right now. And I think most of us were prepared with something already in order to go, but we didn't, we really didn't think we'd be gone very long. We thought we'd, we'd leave and come right back. And a lot of people got pretty worried about this and, and started thinking crazy things like, you know, one of the guys at local, their doctor, he said, well, I could fly the, I could fly the plane, you know, and uh, well, he was, he was a jet pilot, but no, we don't think we need to do that. Let's just, <laughs> let's just take the trucks up to Badalite. And we have to meet the people coming from Goyongo. We have to meet the people coming from Wasolo. And we had a total of 37 people gathered together at Badalite. So we were up at Badalite. Here we are evacuating. And the kids are running around and swimming in the pool and having a good time ordering uh, Coke, you know, from the restaurant and all this kind of stuff. And this Egyptian doctor comes over and talks to me and says, why are you guys going? There's nothing going to happen here. And I said, yeah, I I agree. He said, in fact, why don't you just stay here a couple of nights and then, then go home because uh, nothing's going to happen. But the edict had come down from our mission leaders to get out of there. Paul tells about their trip to evacuate to Central African Republic just across the river to the north of their location. Well, so then from Badalite, we took straight off up to uh, Mobai, and then we crossed the river, and then Roy and I knew the... Uh, Swiss Pentecostal missionaries that were just north of, of Mobai a little ways, another 100 kilometers. They had no idea we were coming, of course. So we all went into Elim, and so we show up, and it was late now. It was dark when we got there, and they were just finishing a prayer meeting. They came out, and they looked at us, and they said, give us, give us a minute here. And after a couple of minutes, they came back, and they said, it's really interesting. They said, during our prayer meeting, we were praying that God would teach us how to be hospitable. And now we have the chance to do it. He says, I, I, you rarely see a prayer answered this quickly. <laughs> it, was, it was great. And they said, okay, we want everybody to stand in family groups so we can see how many people are together. And then 
they started figuring out and they, they, they farmed us out into this mission. It was fabulous. You know, within an hour, we were all settled away someplace, a place to sleep and a place to get a shower. And they came up with some kind of food, too. I mean, you know, it was, it was just amazing. So there we were at Elim. Okay, we're here. We're fine. We're safe. Now what do we do from here? That was the next question. Indeed, the question was, now what? For the evacuated missionaries and other expatriates from Zaire. Most missionaries moved to Cameroon or the Central African Republic for a few years, plugging into work and ministries while waiting for peace and stability to return to Zaire. The Zaireans had had enough of Mobutu's poor leadership and theft from the treasury and were revolting and causing civil unrest throughout the country, wanting change. The people were delivering a message, and the international community had also figured out Mobutu's game as well. And so money, loans, and support dried up. Mobutu knew he had to act. I'd like to thank my dad, Roger Eels, as well as Dr. Tom Cairns and Paul Noren for coming on the episode today and sharing their stories. So to conclude, does Mobutu get the message and bring about positive change to his people? Does he give up his absolute power and begin to serve and lead his country and restore positive international relationships? The story of President Mobutu's attempt to salvage his presidency will be told in Episode 4 of the series on The History of Congo. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me again. Other episodes and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Life Stories by Congo Kid Podcasts can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Paninga Nangai, Tikala Malamu. My friends, stay well. <laughs>